Hello, and welcome to the March edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. I'm Pippa Curtis, and with me in the studio today are Catherine, Phil and Jane, all ready to record this month's offering. On the other side of the glass panel is technical wizard Duncan Wynne, who will be doing all the difficult stuff of editing, splicing, cutting, pasting and whatever else is required to get our recording ready and fit for purpose to send out to you. I'm sure some of you will know that John Plush is normally in charge of recording the magazine, but sadly he can't be with us as he's just undergone a major operation. I'd like to take this opportunity on behalf of the team here to wish John a very speedy recovery and we look forward to welcoming you back, John, as soon as possible. John, however, in his inimitable way, has still managed to contribute to this month's edition. He did a couple of external recordings for us before his operation and I'm delighted to be able to include them in this month's edition. Now, March is traditionally a month when we start to look forward Spring is in the air, sometimes. The days are getting longer and we begin to think about things like summer holidays and barbecues. And in my husband's case, and possibly Phil's, the start of the cricket season. It might therefore seem somewhat ironic that we've chosen history as our theme for this month's magazine. But I don't think you'll be disappointed as we have a wonderfully diverse range of material to present to you. History as you perhaps might not have thought of it in some cases. And to get us started, Phil has written a wonderful article called The Curtain of Time. Thank you, Pippa. Last summer, my wife and Anne and I visited Bosham, which is spelt Bosham but pronounced Bosham, a small village on the outskirts of Chichester Harbour. I wanted to see the Mary Rose Museum, and Anne was very keen on seeing the well-reviewed Me and My Girl at the Chichester Festival Theatre. Both were fabulous, incidentally. While in Bosham, we walked down to the beach late one afternoon before the tide came in and thus prevented us from completing a circular walk. It was hot, and outside the church, a group of children, now ashore from the afternoon sailing, was laughing and shouting and, having found its land legs again, chasing each other over the narrow bridge that spanned the brook as it made its way down to the Solent. Inside, the church was cool and airy, well looked after, inviting. And, it seemed to me, it was full of the past. An ancient crypt lay beneath the floor, the old charnel house, presumably, where the bones of the long-deceased found a final resting place. It was low-ceilinged, and I could barely stand in it, its architecture and narrow horizontal windows suggesting it was Saxon origin, perhaps a thousand years old. In the nave was a stone commemorating the grave of one of King Canute's daughters. It's not, of course, entirely flattering to be remembered merely as someone's daughter, even if that someone was a king, but her name is lost to us, so the relationship must serve. Canute, as we may recall, was the Danish king of England, who famously demonstrated that he could not hold back the waves, and intriguingly, that object lesson in the limitations of political power took place right here, on the foreshore at Bossum. If that weren't enough, the Earl of Hereford, the future King Harold of England, worshipped at Bossom Church before sailing for France. Bossom was in fact one of his manors. It was an ill-fated journey and it ended in shipwreck, capture and being handed over to Duke William of Normandy, the would-be William the Conqueror. He made Harold swear an oath to recognise him as heir to King Edward the Confessor, a promise which Harold reneged on, hence the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Hence also the Bayer Tapestry, which actually includes a picture of Bossom Church and of the great round arch below which I found myself standing. 
There are times and places when I feel we can almost touch the past, when the otherwise impenetrable curtain seems for a moment to promise some transparency. For someone who's studied history for over 60 years now, that's a source of some frustration as well as pleasure. The past is what actually happened, what things were actually like. History is merely our attempt to interpret and explain that past. Did Canute really think that he could hold back the tide, or was he merely trying to silence his flattering courtiers who exaggerated his powers? Where was Harold sailing to? Did he take that oath? Was he tricked into taking it over the hidden bones of a saint, thus giving it greater importance? The past could tell us, but it can't communicate, so we rely on historians and are left to choose between their differing theories. Before setting off for home, we stopped in Chichester to look inside the cathedral. I had a particular reason for doing this, and that was to see the Arundel tomb, a 13th century stone carving brought to our attention by the poet Philip Larkin in his poem of the same name. This is the reaction it inspired in him. Here's the poem, An Arundel Tomb. Side by side, their faces blurred, the Erling Countess lie in stone, their proper habits vaguely shown as jointed armour, stiffened pleat, and that faint hint of the absurd, the little dogs under their feet. Such plainness of the pre-Baroque hardly involves the eye, until it meets his left-hand gauntlet, still clasped empty in the other, and one sees with a sharp, tender shock his hand withdrawn, holding her hand. They would not think to lie so long. Such faithfulness in effigy was just a detail friends would see a sculptor's sweet commissioned grace thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. They would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage the air would change to soundless damage, turn the old tenantry away, how soon succeeding eyes begin to look, not read. Rigidly they persisted, linked, through lengths and breadths of time. Snow fell undated. Light each summer thronged the glass. A bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground. And up the paths, the endless, altered people came, washing at their identity. Now, helpless in the hollow of an unarmorial age, a trough of smoke in slow, suspended skeins above their scrap of history, only an attitude remains. Time has transfigured them into untruth. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon and to prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. Thank you, Catherine. Here Larkin is exploring what exactly it is that the past has left us. The man's in full armour and the wife in soft gown and they lie side by side her body slightly inclined towards his. He holds her right hand in his right hand, and he has taken off his armoured gauntlet to do so. The contact of the hands is gentle and delicate. This is not the grasp of passion, nor of loss. Is it love? Is that the message from the past? Larkin clearly thought it might be, or is it a 13th century symbol conveying a relationship that we no longer understand? The past seems to me to have a strong presence in Chichester Cathedral, but it cannot articulate any answers to my questions. I'll have to rely on historians. So I bought the handbook. 
but the enrichment and the memory will come from that tiny but tangible flavour of the atmosphere, of the fabric that reaches us just occasionally from behind the curtain between us and the past. Well, that was a wonderful start, Phil. Thank you. As you may have realised, Phil is something of a professional historian, but he's not the only one. Jane is also an historian of sorts. She just delves further back in time. And we thought you might like to hear a bit about Jane's career as an archaeologist. So Phil put together some questions. Thank you. Let me reintroduce you to Jane Fires, who is, of course, a member of today's reading team. Her day job is an archaeologist, but she doesn't actually dig. Instead, as a Roman pottery and glass specialist, she catalogues, sticks pots and glass together, draws and prepares material for publication. For the past 25 years, her work has mainly been in Egypt, with short periods in Beirut in England. Jane, tell us something about travelling to your current Egyptian site. Well, the site I've worked on for so long in Egypt is called Amarna, and was once the home of the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten, and his wife Nefertiti, and their son, who you may have heard of, Tutankhamun. It's about 200 miles south of Cairo, turned left into the eastern desert. When I first started going to Amarna, there was only one road beside the Nile, and getting to site was pretty difficult, requiring a train to Minya, if the ticket office at the station in Cairo would sell you a ticket as a foreigner. And then you caught a truck with locals to the Nile crossing, boat over the Nile, and then a borrowed donkey to site about two miles away. Uh, nowadays it's a bit more civilised as there are now three roads the original one, the one down the Nile the one in the eastern desert and one in the western desert and the problem as ever being that you would not want to wait, break down in the, one of the two new desert roads as one of the team did last time and had to trek some hours to the original road to find a garage I understand this week I met someone who works on the same site and there is now a bridge over the Nile OK, sounds complicated. You've arrived. Now what? Uh, well, if you're one of the first arrivals, the first job after a cup of tea is to find some bedding and clean your room. The rooms are set round a courtyard and the oldest are built in the fashion of Islamic funeral houses with domed roofs, as no one in the 1920s thought to ask what the builder usually built. The latest ones are brick-built with flat roofs and they contain a bed with a mattress, a desk, lamp and mat. They didn't always contain all that, just the bed, and a very thin mattress, um, a lamp, if you were lucky, and a mat. Um, there are gun turrets on the roof, left over from the problems in the area in the early 2000s, although this part of Egypt is generally thought of as bandit country anyway. Recently, nine cops were killed in Minya, about 40 miles away. OK, Jane. What are the housekeeping arrangements when you're there? Well, we have a cook who generally prefers decent food but doesn't understand the term vegetarian, vegan or anything not connected to meat. A cow is killed each week in the village and definite cuts of meat are not recognised. You get a lump of meat and that's that. And if there's a special event in the villages nearby, you may not even get a meal as he's catering for that instead. I have faced a large pile of rice and that's it. There's someone to wash clothes and bedding now, whereas when I started it was all do-it-yourself. There are two showers for the 20 of us if water is available and shallow three feet wide aluminium dish things called tishts in which it is possible to have a bath in your room 
not recommended as the curved bottom of a tisht makes control difficult and the water usually ends up all over the floor with you in amongst in it. Anyway, electricity is sporadic, the water's turned off regularly and we have what is laughingly called broadband, but it depends on whether the locals have stolen, stolen the wiring on the roof. Drinking water comes in either on a truck or a donkey with the Coke and the Fanta. OK, sounds like five-star accommodation. Can you tell us something about the rest of the team? Well, depending on the weeks I'm there, usually two to six, the team is made up of specialists in pottery and glass, both Pharaonic and Roman, two British, one Hungarian, wood and charcoal, he's German, wall paintings, British, but botanists, British and American, bone and skeletal remains, they're all American, fibres and materials, Scottish, leather, Dutch, photographers, British and Dutch, a stonemason, British, but I understand he had a, um, a nervous breakdown last um, last year uh, due to, I think, um, our, our pillars probably have something to do with it. An architect, Indian, archaeologists mapping the sites, British, American, Italian, students from Arkansas University, two Egyptian inspectors, and, of course, the boss, Barry Kemp, professor from Cambridge University, and his deputy, Anna, who's Australian. You've set the scene quite memorably here, Jane. Can you now give us some idea of what a working day looks like? Um, if we're digging, the day starts at 5am, a breakfast of cereal or toast. Um, we used to have to walk to site about a mile away, but nowadays a truck arrives to take us at 6 we take a second breakfast with us in cool boxes or it's sent out on a donkey later on in the morning about, about 9.30. We're greeted on site by Abdul Azim, who has prepared fennel tea. It's a must drink, even if the water did come from the Nile. Pottery comes up in bucket loads and needs to be sorted into bases, rims, handles, anything painted or interesting. Then it's counted, listed, bagged and labels attached so that it can be taken back to the dig house to be catalogued, drawn and stored. All finds are stored in a big building at the back of the dig house and at the end of the dig this is sealed and ceremonially opened by the inspector from Minya at the start of each dig. Waiting for him to actually arrive is somewhat problematic if you want to get at any finds. The weather's usually hot by about 10 or 11 and work usually stops for me at 12 when I return to the dig house for a pint of water and lunch. Then back to work in the dig house on the pottery and glass. The archaeologists involved in planning stay on site until four, so it's advisable to get into the shower before they all get back. There's only two. Two showers, that is. 4pm is tea time. Since the team of builders came from England to build the new museum on the banks of the Nile, we're up to our ears in PG tips and marmite, as every one of them had been told to take tea bags and marmite with them. Mm -hmm. At least we know we'll not run out in, of either any time soon. We work until about 10 at night, then it's up at 5 again. Six days a week until Friday, when we get to go to other sites nearby or visit other foreign missions to see what they're up to. The site itself is between two villages about a mile in each direction, so if we're digging... We have to make sure we employ the same amount of people from each village. Otherwise, there's trouble. 
Jen, I'm assuming that the Egyptian authorities are quite keen to keep an eye on what comes out of the ground and what the team takes away with it. Is that the case? Yes, it is. And every 10 years, it's what's called a division. When the Egyptian bigwigs come down from Cairo to decide what they want to keep and what we can take away with us. This is useful to the botanists and the insect people as they can remove specimens, but generally nothing much is moved from sight as it's needed to work on during the next year. So contrary to public opinion, very little gold turns up. Well, that's really disappointing. (laughs) Anyway, can we assume that the facilities are state-of-the-art? Oh, gosh, yes. The sanitary arrangements are about 50 yards outside the back gate. Two loos over a pit variety. Um... OK during the day, but not so funny in the middle of the night, as the warm walls of the dig house provide a comfort to a variety of dogs and there's also the night guards to navigate and a bucket is generally the best option. But I did happen to come back from the loo on one occasion and said to my boss, Do you, would you like the good news or the bad news? And he said, well, what's the good news? I said, well, the light, there's a light in the loo. And he said, oh, good. And I said, he said, and the bad news is, I said, well, I dropped the torch down the loo. <laughs> so that was the end. <laughs> Lots of archaeology on the telly at the moment. Uh, are we going to see you on the television? Uh, n- well, no, no. Uh, sometimes a pro- film crew arrives, as one did on the last occasion I was at Amarna, and the BBC insisted on filming a camel being ridden through the desert. We did point out that camels in this point out of Egypt were only used to transport sugarcane to the factory and were not used to being ridden. The BBC and the Egyptian inspector decided not to take any notice, which resulted in the inspector, who insisted on being the one who rode the camel, dumped some distance away in the desert and the camel taking some time to find. And when it's time to come home? At the end of the dig, it's back to Cairo in a taxi, if you're lucky and the local bus, if you're not, which involves around five hours wedged in between the locals. But at least the bus doesn't get stopped by the roadblocks. Cost of the latter is about £2 English. The taxi does get stopped, and it's often escorted out of the province by whatever transport the police have handy. And this has involved a tank in the past. Jane, I think we're very lucky to have you here by the sound of it. Uh, many thanks for sharing that story with us uh, about what you call the day job. I don't think many of us will ever think of archaeology in the same way again. Thank you. No, we certainly wouldn't. And I don't think I'd want to be one either after those stories. Well, whilst, whilst I don't have the credentials of either Jane or Phil, I have loved history from way back when I was a small child. And I'm convinced this passion took hold as a result of a book my mother had when she was a child and which I read endlessly from about the age of 8 to 18. I've got it here in the studio as I'm going to read something from it. But it's a book with a bit of a difference. It was first published in 1932 and its title is Kings and Queens by Eleanor and Herbert Fargen. Apparently, and guess who knew this? Yes, Phil. These were well-known historians of their time And in this book, they've written poems about every king and queen of England, trying to incorporate the salient facts that happened during each particular monarch's reign. There's also a wonderful illustration of each king or queen, either looking saintly or evil or whatever they felt was appropriate for the particular monarch. And as you can imagine, as a child, I found the pictures riveting. And of course, they brought all the poems to life. I thought I'd begin with the poem about King John, seeing as he has something of a local connection. 
As you may know, he's buried in Worcester Cathedral between the two great saints, Oswald and Woolston. But did you know that his body was shrouded in a monk's cowl and habit? Tradition has it that he hoped that this disguise, along with his two saintly companions, would enable him to escape the vigilance of the gatekeepers of heaven, for he was well aware that the wickedness of his life would give him little chance of being admitted on merit. And this wickedness is illustrated neatly in the poem. And it's John. John, John, bad King John, shamed the throne that he sat on. Not a scruple, not a straw cared this monarch for the law. Promises he daily broke, none could trust a word he spoke. So the barons brought a deed down to Rushy Runnymede. Magna Carta was its height, charter of the people's right, framed and fashioned to correct kings who act with disrespect. And with stern and solemn air, pointing to the parchment there, sign, 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 they said, sign King John or resign instead. John, John, turning pale, ground his teeth and bit his nail, chewed his long moustache, and then ground and bit and chewed again. Plague upon the people, he muttered. What are they to me? Plague upon the parents too. And here he had another chew. But the barons, standing by, eyed him with a baleful eye. Not a finger did they lift, not an eyelash did they shift. But with one tremendous roar, even louder than before, sign, 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 they said, sign King John or resign instead. And as you probably know, he signed. And as a postscript to all this, Phil tells me that it was on this very day, 6th of March, 1204, so 815 years ago for those mathematically challenged like me, that John's garrison lost Castle Galliard and thus effectively Normandy, to the French. He wasn't a great king, really, John. Moving on to another one. My second poem concerns a king who also has a connection with Worcester Cathedral, but a somewhat more tenuous one. His brother Arthur is buried here. Have you guessed? Yes, Henry VIII. But did you know that Arthur, Henry's older brother, was betrothed to Catherine of Aragon when they were both only 11 years old? Two years later, they were married by proxy, the English ceremony taking place, interestingly, at Tickenhall Palace, just up the road from here at Bewdley. Another two years elapsed before Catherine came over from Spain for the official marriage at St Paul's Cathedral. Sadly, then, only two months later, Arthur died at Ludlow Castle. A great procession brought the young prince to Worcester for burial, where he was laid in the tomb amidst great weeping and lamentation, according to writers at the time. And, well, might they have wept, could they have realised the outcome of his death. If Arthur had lived, Henry would not have come to the throne, and the marriage and divorce of Catherine, the resulting break with the Church of Rome, and the sweeping away of the monasteries might not have happened. Another one of those huge historical what-if moments. Anyway, on to the poem. I must point out that it isn't entirely historically accurate, but I'm sure you'll appreciate that as an impressionable child, this bit of doggerel just captivated me. 
bluff King Hal was full of beans. He married half a dozen queens. For three called Kate, they cried the bands, and one called Jane and a couple of Annes. The first he asked to share his reign was Kate of Aragon, straight from Spain. But when his love for her was spent, he got a divorce and out she went. Anne Boleyn was his second wife. He swore to cherish her all his life. But seeing a third he wished instead, he chopped off poor Anne Boleyn's head. He married the next afternoon, Jane Seymour, which was rather soon. But after one year as his bride, she crept into her bed and died. Anne of Cleves was number four. Her portrait thrilled him to the core. But when he met her face to face, another royal divorce took place. Catherine Howard, number five, billed and cooed to keep alive. But one day Henry felt depressed. The executioner did the rest. Sixth and last came Catherine Parr, sixth and last and luckiest far, for this time it was Henry who hopped the twig and a good job too. And the picture shows all the six wives underneath Henry VIII. As I say, it was great reading when you were about ten. Now, I think it's probably time for a John Plush musical interlude. And he tells me that uh, this is the Linerol Consort of Viles interview. The Linerol Consort of Viles is an early music quartet who perform all over the world, either as a group or individually with various other well-known period ensemble, such as fretwork and collegium, or collegium, I think that's how you say it, musicum 90. Collegium Musicum 90, that sounds better. Anyway, one member of the group lives here in Worcester and John Plush met her and one of her fellow violists at her home in Barbourne. That was Ancor Keco Partire by Cipriano de Rore, played there by the Linerol Consort of Viles, two members of which, Claire Horacek and David Hatcher, are with me now. Dave, would you say there is a growing interest in early music? Yeah, the interest has been developing right through the last century uh, with early pioneers and um, has continued to flourish, really. How far back does the viol date? Well... The very earliest depiction of a vial can be considered to be uh, around about 1470. And the instruments that we play 
are copies of the oldest surviving instrument, which is from about um, 1540, 1550. The smallest instrument could be the, si- the sort of size of a viola, a modern viola, and the largest instrument could be the size of a small double bass um, and anything in between in three or four different sizes. It's tempting to imagine that the viol family led on to our modern stringed instruments, violins, cellos and so forth. It's not quite as simple as that, is it, Claire? Um, no, the, the viola de gamba came from um, above a bulva guitar-like family because it's got frets and it's got six strings normally and um, tuned in fourths and a third in the middle. So people who play the guitar would understand that a lot more than violin players and cello players who can't understand you know, how we can play in fourths and thirds. So, David, can you describe this instrument you're playing and, and, and how it differs from a modern, what, cello? It's not quite that either, is it, really? No, they, the, um, the violin and the viol family coexisted, uh, but they were nothing to do with each other. The violin family were considered um, low-status instruments. They were the, the instruments of taverns. Um, they were carved, as you're probably aware, carved out of um, thicker pieces of wood to shape the dome shape of the front of the instrument, uh, and the back was also carved into this, a similar curved dome shape. Um, with the viol family, the back is a flat plank, and uh, the front on these instruments, these are particularly um, unusual instruments in that they, they originate in Venice, as I say, from around the early 16th century. The front was like a guitar front, but just bent in one plane, so from... Um, from the sides, as it were, the arches were stra- uh, stretched across, uh, made across the, the side, from one side to the other of the instrument, and the front was bent over those arches. So it's only curved in one plane, because you can't bend wood in two planes at once. Um, whereas, the, as I say, the violin family were carved into uh, a, a more uniform curves in, in sort of north, south, and east, west, as it were. Then the, the neck is similar to... Uh, cello neck except that it has to carry six strings and the uh, the neck where you finger the strings has frets in the same way that a guitar has frets which as Claire has said that the viol and the um, shares an ancestor uh, with the guitar and the lute as the the, um, the violin family have a different ancestor which was the rebek or rebab which is still played in the Middle East. Claire do you play with vibrato? Um, sometimes, yes. <laughs> I started playing the cello as a little girl and, you know, learnt how to play vibrato. But um, I've always been interested in early music and even, you know, at school, my friends, we used to talk about not playing with vibrato and, you know, it's... It's a hot potato, isn't it, David, then? <laughs> well, if you look at the sources, yeah, I can think of um, a book published in 1492 where it's, uh, the writer says when you're looking for a singer, you select a singer who has a pleasant vibrato. He doesn't say what pleasant is, but, but he's, say, he's still talking about it. Beethoven's favourite cellist was a chap called Romberg, who wrote a book published in 1815, where he says that uh, in the time of his teacher's youth, it was um, considered uh, that you use vibrato as much and as often as possible, so that would be the late 18th century. But at this time, when he's writing, 1815, that's considered very bad taste to use so much vibrato. So things come and go. Is there much being written these days for your instruments? 
Uh, yes, there is. Uh, I have been playing for the last four or five years in a project with uh, another group called Fretwork, who uh, do a lot of work with contemporary composers. We've just been doing something with um, Orlando Goff called The World Encompassed, uh, and they're working at the moment with um, Nyman doing an um, absolutely new piece. So yes, there are. Uh, there, I think that Fretwork are probably the group who are in the, the lead with viral music uh, from contemporary composers. So Claire, looking around your house here in Worcester, one is struck by the, uh, the artwork. Um, expressionism, I'm not sure what it is, but it's, it's your style because it's your stuff. Tell me, does your painting inform your music or is it the other way around? Or do you keep them completely separate? Um, well, I think I keep them separate, really. I, I, I sort of need to do both. I mean, I've, when I was a student, I studied fine art and I played a, a lot of music. And when I wrote my, I wrote, I had to write a dissertation and it was all about Paul Clay and the way he was a musician and an artist and the links. And I think Paul Clay just kept them quite separate. I mean, he used musical themes in his work, and his work is abstract like music. So David, you've recently brought out an edition of Consort Music from the Court of Maximilian I. Tell us about that. Yes, well, I came by a reprint, a modern reprint, of a 16th century manuscript that's now in Vienna, in the National Library of Austria in Vienna. Um, and it's a collection of 86 pieces um, by leading composers of the very beginning of the 16th century, so people like Zenfel, Isaac, um, Josquin, they were phenomenally famous throughout Europe in their day. Uh, and so this is a, a, a handwritten manuscript, a collection of these pieces. Um, of course, copying was not available unless it was done by hand uh, and was very expensive. So uh, we get a lot of care taken in the production of these manuscripts. So they're beautiful things to look at. So anyway, I came by um, a reprint of this, a uh, facsimile reprint of this manuscript, and discovered, to my surprise, that there's no modern edition of it complete. So I set to and did it, and I've just finished it. It's, uh, the pieces are uh, for ensemble, and they range from three parts to mostly four parts, uh, quite a few five-part pieces, and there's one six-part piece. Uh, that's fairly standard um, at the time that uh, on consorts ranged from two, three, four, five, or six parts. Gradually, as time went through the 16th century, um, composers wrote for larger ensembles. Well, a duet is what we have here today, so what are you going to play for us? Well, it's a piece called Jam Zauche by Pierre de la Rue, who was a Flemish composer, one of the, the, the top names in uh, Northern European music. Well, Claire Horacek, David Hatcher, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
16th century music there, played by two members of the Lineral Consort of Viles. And thank you very much, John, for putting that together. Now, Catherine hasn't said very much apart from a wonderful rendition of the poem, so it's over to you for a bit of a gem, I believe. Thanks, Pippa. Um, I'm going to read a piece by a 19th century journalist called Henry Mayhew. Uh, He was writing in the middle of the 19th century and he contributed um, very many articles to a a newspaper called The Morning Post. He was an early social scientist in some respects, interviewing a vast range of individuals whom he came across in the London streets, from costermongers and street performers to children who were scraping a living as mudlarks and as crossing sweepers, for example. His his particular technique was that he would transcribe the words of his subject so that we get a vivid sense of the individual and their life. The piece that I've chosen to read is about a street entertainer, the Happy Family Exhibitor. It was first published in 1857 or thereabouts, and it gives us a glimpse, I think, into some of the interests and preoccupations of the Victorians if if we muse on it. So here goes, the Happy Family Exhibitor. Happy families or assemblages of animals of diverse habits and propensities living amicably or at least quietly in one cage are so well known as to need no further description here. Concerning them, I received the following account. These exhibitions were first started by a man who was my teacher. He was a stocking weaver and a fancier of animals and birds, having a good many in his place. Hawks, owls, pigeons, starlings, cats, dogs, rats, mice, guinea pigs, jackdaws, fowls, ravens and monkeys. His way of training the animals is a secret which he's taught to me. It's principally done, however, I may tell you, by continued kindness and petting and studying the nature of the creatures. Hundreds have tried their hands at happy families and have failed. The cat has killed the mice and the hawks have killed the birds, the dogs, the rats and even the cats, the rats, the birds and even one another. Indeed, it was anything but a happy family. By our system, we never have a mishap and have had animals eight or nine years in the cage until they've died of age, indeed. In our present cage, we have 54 birds and animals and of 17 different kinds. Three cats, two dogs, a terrier and a spaniel, two monkeys, two magpies, two jackdaws, two jays, ten starlings, some of them talk, six pigeons, two hawks, two barn fowls, one screen owl, five common sewer rats, five white rats, a novelty, eight guinea pigs, two rabbits, one wild and one tame, one hedgehog and one tortoise. Of all these, the rats is the most difficult to make a member of a happy family. Among birds, the hawk. The easiest trained animal is a monkey, and the easiest trained bird, a pigeon. They live together in their cages all night and sleep in a stable, unattended by anyone. They were once 36 hours as a trial without food. That was in Cambridge, and no creature was injured. But they were very peckish, especially the birds of prey. I wouldn't allow it to be tried, it was for a scientific gentleman, any longer, and I fed them well to begin with. 
There are now in London, this is 1857, I remind you, there are now in London five happy families, all belonging to two families of men. Mine, that's the one I have the care of, is the strongest, 54 creatures. The others will average 40 each, or 214 birds and beasts in happy families. Our only regular places now are Waterloo Bridge and the National Gallery. The expense of keeping my 54 is 12 shillings a week, and in a good week, indeed the best week, we take 30 shillings, and in a bad week, sometimes not 8 shillings. It's only a poor trade, though there are more good weeks than bad, but the weather has so much to do with it. The middle class of society are our best supporters. When the happy family... Only one was first in London 14 years ago. The proprietor took a pound a day on Waterloo Bridge and only showed in the summer. The second happy family was started eight years ago and did as well for a short time as the first. Now there are too many happy families. There are none in the country. The animal that takes the longest to train is the ferret. I was the first that ever introduced one into a cage and that was at Greenwich. It's a very savage little animal and will attack almost anything. People have a notion that we use drugs to train a happy family. They've said to me, it's done with opium. But, sir, believe me, there is no drugs used at all. It's only patience and kindness and petting them that is used and nothing else of any sort. The first ferret, as I heard, it killed me about two pounds worth of things before I could get him in any way to get into the happy family. He destroyed birds and rabbits and guinea pigs, and he'd seize them at any time, whether he was hungry or not. I watched that ferret till I could see that there was a better method to be used with a ferret, and then I sold my one to a rat catcher, and then I bought two others. I tried my new system, and it succeeded. It's a secret which I used, so I can't mention it, but it's the simplest thing in the world. It's not drawing their teeth out or operating on them. It's only kindness and such like and patience. I put my new ferrets into the cage and there they have been ever since, as may have been seen on Tower Hill and such places as I've pitched on. The monkey is almost as bad as a ferret for training for a happy family for this reason. When they're playing, they use their teeth. They're the best playfellows in the world and never fall out or cry when they bite. They're the life and amusement of the company. The danger with the monkey is this. Now, I've got a puppy, as was given me by a friend of mine, and I both respect the gentleman who's given it me and the mother of the little dog, and I've taken all the pains in the world to train this pup to the happy family. But he's a yelping, noising animal. Now, my monkey is the most pleasant and best-tempered one in the world, and the amusement and delight of all who see him, as many on Waterloo Bridge, can testify. Whenever this monkey goes near the dog, it howls at him. So the monkey plays with him, pulling his tail and nibbling his ears and hair and biting his toe and so on. Anything that will play with the monkey, it's all right, and they're the best friends in the world. But if they show any fear, then it's war, for the monkey won't be put upon. Now there's another pup in the same cage, which the monkey is just as fond of. They play open mouth together, and I've seen Mr Monkey put his arms round the pup's neck and pull it down, and then they go to sleep together. I've actually seen, when a lady has given the monkey a bit of biscuit, or whatnot, he's gone and crumbled some bits before the pup to give it its share. This is truth. My monkey is a lady monkey. The cat and the birds are very good friends indeed. They'll perch on her back, and I've even seen them come on her head and pick up the bits of dirt as you'll generally find on a cat's head. 
I've tried a very ex- curious experiment with cats and birds. I've introduced a strange cat into my cage, and instantly she gets into the cage, she gets frightened and looks round for a moment, and then she'd make a dart upon almost the first thing that's facing her. If it's the owl, monkey, small birds or anything, she'll fly at it. It's in general then that the monkey is the greatest enemy to the strange cat of anything in the cage. He'll go and bite her tail, but he won't face her. Then the other cats will be all with their hairs up and their tails swelled up to fly at the stranger, but then I generally takes her out or else there would be a fight. All the rats will be on the lookout and run away from the strange cat and the little birds fly to the top of the cage, fluttering and chirruping with fear. And just to conclude, a little bit of more of a context. Um, the exhibitor said, There are some gentlemen who give me regularly a penny or twopence a week. I could mention several professional actors who do that to me. I make the most money when the monkey's at his tricks, for then they want to stop and see him at his fun. And I keep asking them for money and do it so often that at last they're obliged to give something. My cage has wire work all round and blinds to pull down when I change my pitch. There are springs under the cage to save the jolting over the stones. I'm fond of my little stock and always was from a child of dumb animals. I'd a deal sooner that anybody hurt me than any of my favourites. Wow. I think the question is who's going to volunteer to try that out in the 21st century? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. Um, Well, once again, I'm going to let Phil introduce his next piece. Yes, these days when histories are printed, the authors often feel that they've got to explain what their view of history is so that we can put what we read into context. The days when we could assume that we all knew what history was being well and truly over. I've picked one by Margaret Macmillan from her book called History's People. Margaret Macmillan is a Canadian historian who specialises in the end of the First World War and the period that followed. She's also related to Lloyd George and Dan Snow. She writes, History, I sometimes think, is like a rambling, messy and eccentric house. It has been built, added to, renovated repeatedly over the centuries. Its foundations are buried in that conveniently vague place, the mists of time. But some of the spade work was surely done in the Near East by anonymous author or authors of the Epic of Gilgamesh, in Europe's classical world by Herodotus, Thucydides, Tacitus and Livy, or in China by Sima Xuan, the great historian of the Han Dynasty, while Homer, Virgil or the Arab traveller Ibn Buttata have added their decorative flushes. Flourishes, I should say. Monkish scribes, Chinese scholars, Arab chroniclers all painstakingly placed their bricks and stones. The Renaissance produced some elaborate rooms devoted to understanding princes and popes, while the Reformation and Counter-Reformation created some sober, undecorated spaces with strongly moral tales. In the 19th century, the inhabitants added orderly libraries and well-organised files, while the 20th century brought tiled laboratories where the past could be dissected and analysed by people like Jane. I added that bit in. There is one wing, the postmodernist wing, where there appears to be no order at all and no clear style. Every room, say those who live there, is as valuable or as meaningful as the other. It is impossible to discern a single use or a dominant style in history's house. No one can tell where it begins or ends because it is eternally under construction and there is always a new corridor to discover or neglected rooms which might be worth cleaning up and letting in the light. 
Strange noises come from the basements or the attics. Some rooms are like those in Bluebeard's castle, striking dread into anyone who draws near the door, much less opens it. Other rooms still open to gardens, where it looks like a new spring is coming. Historians, if I can continue the metaphor just a little bit more, are the house's caretakers. Some of us, like the medieval chroniclers, believe in visiting one room after another in the order in which they were built, while others prefer to settle on a particular part of the house and get to know it in the round. One group of caretakers thinks it's important to focus on what they deem to be the house's most powerful and influential inhabitants. Yet another insists that we cannot understand the house without gathering as much information as we can on the millions whose toil ensured its construction and upkeep, as well as the food and clothing for its inhabitants. Each age brings its own preoccupations, which produce an ever-shifting perspective on the past, and so we ask different questions when we interrogate the past. Not surprisingly, environmental history or the history of economic booms and busts are increasingly popular subjects today. Differences among historians sometimes spill over into civil wars, which can make us forget that we're all engaged in the same endeavour to unearth and analyse the past. Yet history needs us all, from the material to the intellectual historians. The products of agriculture or manufacturing can tell us as much about past societies as the ideas which animated them. Cultural and social historians help us to understand the values, assumptions and social organisation of long-gone people. And we should use the insights of other disciplines. Archaeology comes to mind at once, but anthropology, sociology, biology all can and have enriched history. So does biography. Although the relationship between historians and biographers is often an uneasy one, marked by mutual suspicions. Historians claim that biographers do not properly understand or shortchange the context, while biographers feel that historians miss out on the individuals who help to make history. That tension in turn feeds into the long-standing debate in history over whether events are moved by individuals or the great objective forces such as economic and social changes or technological and scientific advances. And her conclusion, wait for it, my own view is that there is no right or wrong answer, which we will return to later on in this broadcast. Well... Uh, it's a lot to digest there, I have to say. <laughs> I think I might have to listen to you again there, Phil. Well, some up-to-date history, I think, now. Um, have you ever wondered how the credit card came about? Well, if you have, or if you haven't, Jane has the answer. Well, the credit card, if you were to ask people which 20th century invention had most impact on their lives today, the instant answers might be their mobile phone or their PC. Not many people would think first of the little plastic triangles that fill their wallets and purses. And yet, since they first emerged in the late 1950s, credit cards and their kin have been part of the fabric of modern life. Bank credit is for the first time in history, no longer the prerogative of the elite, and, maybe as a result, long-dormant religious and ethical issues about the use and abuse of money have been reborn in the face of this ultimate symbol of economic freedom for millions, as some would see it, or for others, of triumphant Anglo-American consumer culture. Now it's the turn of the modern manifestation of money, plastic. The modern credit card is an American creation, 
the successor to retail credit schemes pioneered in the early 20th century. After the end of the Second World War, wartime restrictions on lending were lifted and the credit boom began. The first general-purpose charge card was the Diners Club card, introduced in 1950. In 1958, the next step came with the appearance of the first real credit card, issued by a bank and generally accepted by large numbers of businesses. This was Bank AmeriCard, ancestor of Visa, and the first universal credit card to be made of plastic. But only in the 1990s did credit cards become truly global, widespread beyond North America and the UK. Of course, a credit card isn't itself money. It's a physical object that provides a way of spending money, moving it and promising it. Money is now more likely to be in numbers and digits on statements and invoices than physical coins and notes. None of us is ever likely to see most of our savings turned into actual cash, even in a bank vault. Credit and debit cards bring home to us daily the fact that money has now lost its essential materiality. Money spent through them is always fresh, new and unused. It can be called up virtually anywhere in the world instantaneously, regardless of national boundaries. Whereas coins and banknotes had king and country marked on them, our card acknowledges no ruler or nation in its design and no limit to its reach other than the expiry date. This new money is supranational and it seems to have conquered the world. And yet, even on credit cards, the echo of traditional money remains. Our card is keen to present itself as a gold card, or it can be platinum or silver, etc. What the card does, of course, is to guarantee payment. A complete stranger can be confident that he will ultimately be paid. For Mervyn King, former government of the Bank of England, these cards are merely a new solution to an age-old problem. He says, as in all types of money or cards used to finance transactions, the acceptability, the trust which the other side of the transaction puts in it is paramount. I could give a different example, which I think illustrates the importance of trust here. When Argentina had its financial collapse and reneged on its national debt in the 1990s, its currency became worthless and in some of the villages of Argentina, the use of IOUs as a substitute for paper currency started to grow up. But the problem with the IOU is that the U has to trust the I, and it might not always be the case. So what happened was that in the villages, some people would take the IOU to a local priest and ask him to endorse it. Now, here we have an example in terms of the use of religion, that was not fundamentally about religion as such, but which was about enhancing the trust that people had in the instrument that was being used. In the absence of a village priest with global reach to endorse our IOUs, we use credit cards which span the world. 
And here is a particular gold card issued by a London-based bank called HSBC, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. It functions through the backing of a US-based credit association, Visa, and has on it written in Arabic and is in short connected to the whole world part of a global financial system backed by a complex electronic superstructure that many of us barely think about as we key in all our pins. All our credit cards transactions are tracked and recorded, building a huge dossier of our movements, writing our economic biographies on the other side of the world. The scale of modern banks is far beyond anything previously known, and their global power now transcends national boundaries. As Mervyn King emphasises, the spread of a wide range of financial transactions, whether using cards used by international banks or the other services they offer, has created institutions which are transnational, which are bigger than the ability of national regulators to control, and which, if they do get into financial difficulties, fortunately not many have, can cause enormous financial mayhem. In the past, rulers could walk away from their debt and leave banks to collapse. But nowadays, it is apparently more difficult to allow a bank to fail than it is to see a government fall. Some aspects of a credit card need no describing. Every credit card in the world is of the same internationally agreed size and shape to fit in all the holes in the wall that now puncture our urban world. In one respect, cards are like traditional coins and banknotes. They have two sides, each holding important information. If you turn the card over, the bank shows us a magnetic strip, part of the electronic verification system that allows us to move money around the world relatively securely and permits instant communication instant transactions and instant gratification. Many cards now incorporate an even more sophisticated piece of electronic, a microchip. This is a microtechnology, one of the great global achievements of the last generation that has made the worldwide credit card possible, and with it, worldwide banks. This little backstrip is the hero, or the villain, of this piece. All the rest is simply a consequence of it. Credit cards do something for which for most people was never possible before. They allow you to borrow whilst avoiding both a traditional pawnbroker and the loan shark. Inevitably, opportunities bring risk. Easy credit undermines traditional values like thrift because it sets you free from having to save before you spend. So it's not surprising that credit cards have drawn the attention of moralists and been categorised as dangerous and even sinful in their very nature. There is little doubt at all that paying by credit card does increase customers' willingness to spend, often more than they can afford. So this is an area of banking that leads rapidly to debates about ethics and religion. The gold card I just mentioned is not just issued by the HSBC, but by HSBC Amana, the Islamic banking wing of the corporation. This credit card is marketed as being compliant with Sharia law. 
All Abrahamic religions have worried about the social evils of usury, lending at interest, that can all too easily result in the poor being driven into debt and eventual destitution. Both the Bible and the Quran have forthright things to say about usury, from the prohibitions of Leviticus, thou shalt not give him money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase, to the scathing words of the Quran, those that live on usury shall rise up before God like men whom Satan has demented by his touch. As a result, Judaism, Christianity and Islam have all struggled with the ethics of advanced financial systems, the separation of money from goods and cash from effort, and above all, the social consequences of encouraging debt. The most recent manifestation of this millennial concern has been the rise of Sharia-compliant Islamic banking since the 1990s, and now Islamic banks offer services consistent with Islamic religious belief and social behaviour in more than 60 countries. Razi Fakir, Deputy Global CEO of HSBC Amana, explains Islamic finance is a very new industry. Conventional banking and finance has been around for as long as we all remember. Islamic finance started sometime in the 60s in Egypt, and I think it was only in the 1990s that it actually took off. So it's less than two decades old in that context. This credit card is, of course, the result of the growing economic importance of the Middle East, but it's also a sign of something else, because this banking development runs counter to what through this 20th century had become received wisdom. Most intellectuals and economists from the French Revolution onwards, including Karl Marx, assumed that religion would steadily dwindle as a force in public life, and in the long run, the forces of God would yield to the forces of mammon. One of the striking facts of the first decade of the 20th century has been the return of religion to the centre of political and economic stage in many parts of the world. The gold credit card is a small but significant part of a growing global phenomenon. I think I'll just go back to keeping my money under my bed. What do you reckon? Thank you, Jane. I'm sure everyone is familiar with the date 1066, but what about the book 1066 and all that? Well, Phil has written another piece about the concept of writing history. I'm sure he ought to do it as a profession, but there you go. Um, Using the book as a reference. I hope I've got that right, Phil. Please feel free to correct me. No, you're absolutely on the money there. Um, Yes, 1066 and all that. It was a book published in 1930. Uh, It went through a whole number of editions in the 1930s and was remarkably popular, giving a few generations some very quotable quotes. On the surface, it's very funny, and although I find it now somewhat dated, I was intrigued to see in the Times just this last Saturday that Al Murray, the pub landlord uh, and comedian, described it as an almost perfect history book and the one book that he most wished that he'd written himself. Frequent tests, what many of us remember of school history, um, are to be found in the book, and they contain such as vice as, do not on any account attempt to write on both sides of the paper at once, do not attempt to answer more than one question at a time. 
questions are set along the lines of, have you ever been king before? If so, state whether you were deposed, beheaded, or died of a surfeit of lampreys. The venerable bead becomes the venomous bead, the great pretender becomes the great suspender, and the Spanish armada becomes the great armadillo. You get the idea. It does also make some pretty extensive assumptions about how much history we, the reader, knows. Would the label Broody Mary, as applied to Mary Tudor, have the same impact if the reader did not know that A, Mary Tudor was known as Bloody Mary, and that B, she longed to have children, suffering at least one false pregnancy? On a deeper level, though, it's a very clever satire aimed at a way of looking at history that dominated British historical writing from the mid-19th century until well into the 20th and still leaves some traces today. It was referred to as the Whig theory of history. That's Whig with an H. And it goes something like this. Firstly, historians should, indeed are obliged to, make judgments in their writing, judgments about right and wrong, good and bad. Hence the frequent references in 1066 to good and bad kings, good and bad things, with capital letters. Now we've got a very good example of this as it happens in the poem that Pippa read about King John, because you'll have um, got the impression, if you remember it, that um, they were very um, critical of John. Uh, He was obviously a bad man. Now I'm going to ask you a question towards the end, and I'm going to want an answer. And the question is going to be, where did King John sign the Magna Carta? So I want you to bear that in mind as we go on. It might help to keep you sane. How to judge what's good and what's bad? Well, it's relatively simple in this theory. Britain was destined to become the preeminent power in the world, as it clearly was when this theory was developed. In the preface to 1066, the authors record their debt to... The great British people, without whose self-sacrificing determination to become top nation, there would have been no memorable history. Absolutely. What made Britain great was twofold, according to this theory. One, the establishment of a parliamentary system in which the power of the monarchy was limited but still important. And two, the dominance of the Protestant religion. So good and bad is easy to identify. The Reformation, for example, was a good thing because it broke with the Pope and Roman Catholicism. Therefore, incidentally, Mary Tudor's burning of heretics made her reign... A bad thing, since England is bound to be C of E, so all the executions were wasted. Indeed. The importance of Parliament is why so much space is devoted to the English Civil War. We come at last to the central period of English history, consisting in the utterly memorable struggle between the Cavaliers, wrong but romantic, and the Roundheads, right but repulsive. Now, the Cavaliers were wrong because in supporting a king with claims to absolutism and one who had tried to rule without Parliament, they were attempting to hold back the development of parliamentary democracy. The Puritans, that is the Roundheads, were right on this point, but their execution of the king and abolition of the monarchy, and indeed the Church of England, was unacceptable as the monarchy and church are essential parts of the British constitution. For a long time before the Civil War, Charles had been quarrelling with the Roundheads about what was right. Charles explained that there was a doctrine called the Divine Right of Kings, which said that A, he was king and that was right, B, Kings were divine, and that was right. C. Kings were right, and that was right. D. Everything was all right. But the Roundheads drew up a petition called the Petition of Right to show that this was wrong, but the most important cause of the Civil War was 
ship money. Uh, ship money is of, yes indeed, ship money is of some local interest here, as indeed is the English Civil War to we folks in Worcester as a whole. Um, it was Thomas Coventry who was at the time owner of Croom Court and incidentally Charles I's top lawyer who decided that the whole country should pay ship money. Now ship money was collected previously from coastal areas and it was devoted towards building a navy for the defence of the realm. Now, Charles uh, and Thomas Coventry between them figured out that it might be wise and indeed justifiable to extend this revenue to the whole country, as the whole country should pay for its own defence. Thus, Thomas Coventry invented something called the Inland Revenue, which you may have heard of. Reasonable on the surface, but Charles was trying to rule without Parliament and parliamentary taxation, and thus the tax was greatly resented, as it appeared to be funding absolutist rule. So how do we see this Whig approach to English history now? In the second half of the 20th century, the vogue in history writing swung against the idea of the historian as someone called upon to make judgments and against the idea of history itself developing as some sort of inevitable force known in the trade as determinism. Only Marxist historians now stay loyal to those ideas, with the rest aiming for a more neutral, dispassionate approach. Lately, the fashion has begun to turn again, though, and here you will perhaps want to form your own opinions. Is it either possible or desirable to try to maintain neutrality when you're writing about and describing, say, the slave trade or the Holocaust? And how do you feel about the recent claims regarding the ownership of history? Can or should men, for example, write about women's history? Now, if that sounds a bit off-centre, I was only reading the other day, and it's been checked on his website, Max Adams, a historian who wanted to write a book called Unquiet Women about um, less than famous but still influential women in history, and found it very difficult, A, to get the book published, and B, when he had done so, got a lot of reaction from women who believed that he should never have undertaken such a piece of work in the first place. Should or can comfortable academics really understand the history of the poor and the dispossessed? These are some of the important issues in modern history writing, and they have yet to be resolved. The resolution of history in 1066 is stark. History was essentially about England's greatness, but now... America was clearly top nation, and history came to a full stop. Isn't that sad? Now, I was going to finish with a question who said history was simple. Well, we didn't, did we? And we never expected it to be. So let's come back to our question. Where did King John sign the Magna Carta? Now, being a historian, there are, of course, two answers to this. One, where did King John sign the Magna Carta? At the bottom. Yes, that's good. (laughs) Very good indeed. And at a deeper level, of course, and please don't tell Pippa I said this because it might just upset us slightly. He didn't sign it at all, did he? Because kings at that time didn't sign documents. They sealed them with the great seal. Now, that's where historians can really spoil history, I think. Thank you, Pippa. Well, we were all debating whether it was Runnymede or not, or that you were going to throw a curveball in and tell us it was somewhere else. Nothing's so simple Very good. Very good indeed. I was going to read you another poem, but perhaps we better move on, about King Charles and, you know, what they said in here. But we'll, I think, move on to a bit of music from... John, and it's time for one of his musical teasers. (laughs) 
Now, I'm sure you'll know that piece of music. But what does it have in common with this? Well, first, what were they? No prizes for guessing the first, Bach's air on the G-string. And you'll recognise the second as the old American minstrel song, The Camptown Races. But what links the two of them? The answer is that neither of them were known by those titles when they were first published. When Stephen Foster wrote what we now know as the Camptown Races in 1850, he called it, or at least it was published as, Gwyn to Run All Night. A couple of years later, however, the piece was republished as the celebrated Ethiopian song Camptown Races. Richard Jackson, who was the curator of the Americana collection in the New York Public Library, tells us that Foster specifically tailored the song for use on the minstrel stage. It became so popular that a parody of the song was used in the 1860 presidential campaign, which was won by the anti-slavery Abraham Lincoln. Stephen Foster's songs are mostly concerned with the ignominies of slavery, and he appears to have had a particular empathy with the southern states and the African-Americans who toiled as slaves there. But he actually visited that part of the world only once. Camptown Races was in fact referring to a racetrack near where Foster was born in western Pennsylvania, not in the south at all. But what of Bach's air on a G-string? The tune with which we are familiar has surfaced in very many guises, one of the best known of which would be A Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum in the 1960s. And who could forget Jacques Lussier's version underscoring television and later cinema cigar advertisements, also in the 1960s and beyond. It even makes a brief token appearance in George Gershwin's An American in Paris. Bach, however, knew it only as the second movement of his orchestral suite number three in D major. one of Edvard Grieg's lyric pieces, played there by Harold Vetter. It was written in 1896, in celebration of the anniversary of his marriage some 25 years before. In 1896, he called it Gratolanterna Comma, meaning the well-wishers are coming. But a year later, when he compiled Book 8 of his lyric pieces, the Norwegian composer rechristened it Wedding at Trollhagen, or as Grieg himself would have said, Brilli op stark portrolhogen. Well, thank goodness, that's a lot easier to pronounce. this melody for quite a while now, but it was Alexander Borodin who composed it originally. Since then, of course, it's been incorporated into the score of the show Kismet by Robert Wright and George Forrest, and made popular as Baubles, Bangles and Beads. 
You used to hear it a lot. Peggy Lee made the best-selling version of it in 1954, along with Georgia Gibbs and Frank Sinatra. I have an LP in my collection of Benny Goodman's orchestra playing it, and very fine it is too. In fact, all of the music for Kismet is based on Borodin's writing, and the tune we know as Baubles, Bangles and Beads is actually the second theme in the second movement of Borodin's String Quartet in D. We heard the strings of the Czech National Symphony Orchestra. In his suite Bergamasque, Debussy included two movements which changed their names. The fourth movement was originally entitled Pavan, but enjoyed a name change to the infinitely more memorable Passepied in F-sharp minor, Allegretto ma non troppo. The third movement of the suite Bergamasque, the opening of which we just heard, began life as Promenade Sentimentale, but it's now known, of course, as Claire de Lune, which means, in French, Moonlight. Is this little tune arguably the most bouncy we have heard so far, it also has the most pedantic wrangles over its name. Is it an outdoor party enjoyed by one or a whole sloth of bears? That is to say, where should the apostrophe be placed? American composer John Walter Bratton wrote it in 1907, and Irish songwriter Jimmy Kennedy added the words in 1932. Kennedy lived at Stablegrove Elm in Taunton in Somerset, and local folklore reckons that the small wooded area between the church and Stablegrove Scout Hut was the inspiration for his lyrics. According to Wikipedia, Bratton composed and personally copyrighted it in 1907, and then assigned the copyright to M. Whitmark and Sons, New York, who published it later that year as The Teddy Bear's Picnic, Characteristic Two-Step. Whitmarks avoided any semantic commitment by using no apostrophes at all. However, the illustrated sheet music cover gives the title as The Teddy Bear's Picnic, with an apostrophe after the word bears, and with no further qualification. Rather more interestingly, if you have heard Robert Brown Hall's Death or Glory March, written in 1895, twelve years before the bears went out for their alfresco tea, you will understand why some aficionados question just how original Bratton's bouncy melody really was. Most people know this in its guise as a vaudeville song, credited to Harry Carroll, first heard in 1917 and given lyrics by Joseph McCarthy. Judy over the Rainbow Garland sang McCarthy's prophetic lyrics, I'm always chasing rainbows to the tune, in the 1941 film Siegfeld Girl, but the music itself, played there by Frank Levy, is actually Chopin. 
is part of his Fantasy Impromptu of 1834. It wasn't published until after Chopin's death, and pianist Arthur Rubinstein reckons that it was a commission, as the original manuscript states in Chopin's own hand that it was composed for the Baroness d'Este. Now, before I play you our last piece, here are some clues to help you guess what it might be. For a start, we don't know if it even had a title when it was first heard, as its actual origin is sadly unknown. But the Oxford Companion to Music suggests it may have been an early Catholic plain song. It also points out its similarities to a piece from 1619 by John Bull. And there's a piece by Purcell which contains the opening notes of our mystery tune. There's also an old Scots carol, Remember, O Thou Man. Any ideas? The first published version of what is almost the present tune appeared in 1744 and became popular the following year with the landing of Charles Stuart. It was sung in London theatres in 1745, with Thomas Arne writing a setting of the tune for the Drury Lane Theatre. But what tune? It's been adopted in many countries around the world, and many composers have had a go at it. Beethoven, Haydn, Brahms, Clementi, J.C. Bach, piles of them. It's played at many public events and will be very familiar to practically every resident of this country. In 1951, the first computer-generated music in the UK was produced at the Computing Machine Laboratory in Manchester, and they chose our piece to demonstrate their amazing machine. Well, computers have advanced a bit since then, but this is how our mystery song sounded, firstly in 1951 on the Manchester computer, then how it sounds now, generated by my rather more modern PC. And it is... Well, I hope you all enjoyed that and managed to work out some of his um, clever questions. It's a great little bit of uh, musical, I'm not sure what, magicry, I think we could say. And I think moving on from there, I'm going to talk a bit about some history with regard to Worcester. So apart from the race course, the cricket ground and the cathedral, Worcester is probably best known for its porcelain industry and the Lee and Perrin's Worcester Sauce Factory. But back in time, there were other industries that dominated the city and have since fallen off the radar somewhat. I have two pieces here. One is about Worcester's vinegar works and the other about glove making. And as an aside, I had some friends come and stay the weekend and we walked along the canal and actually walked past the vinegar works. And it is an extraordinary large part of that bit of Worcester that is taken up by the buildings that were all part of the vinegar works. So... Very interesting. Anyway, the Lowesmore Vinegar Works of Hill, Evans and Company were the largest of their kind in the world. They occupied an area from Lowesmore to St. Martin's Gate. And in order to extend the premises, it was necessary to purchase several streets. 
The firm was established in 1830 by William Hill and Edward Evans and was carried on with marked success by Thomas Rowley Hill MP and Edward Bickerton Evans, sons of the two founders. By 1844, the year when the duty on vinegar was repealed, the works were as large as, if not larger, than any of the London breweries. In 1902, the brewery buildings covered about seven acres of ground. The Filling Hall, stated a Worcester guide, is one of the wonders of Worcester and has as great a span as the roof of Westminster Hall and the enormous tons therein stored dwarf to ridiculously small proportions the hitherto famous ton of Heidelberg. The hall is certainly monumental. Its dimensions are 120 feet by 160 feet, and its glass roof rises to a central height of 70 feet. The firm's own private railway ran into the hall, and the casks were loaded directly into railway trucks. Six grades of vinegar were made, and a tremendous quantity of British wines. The establishment was a complete unit of all the brewery crafts and processes. It contained its own mill and cooperage, where all the vats and barrels were made, and a distillery. And all the processes associated with vinegar and winemaking were carried out there. The vats were among the largest in the world, and nowhere else was, such an, was there such an array to be seen. In 1902, the Great Vat was easily the largest, measuring 32 feet high and 32 feet in diameter. It was further enlarged to 120,379 gallons, dwarfing the Heidelberg tonne at 40,000. Furthermore, there were 150 vats at the works, all of great size. The British wine stores was most extensive and it was by no means impossible to get lost amidst the many subterranean passages, some of them 240 feet long. The wines were of every description from cowslip to port and sherry. William Hale, the caretaker, remembering the days before 1914, said, In those days, raisin and elderberry wine was ninepence a bottle, cider a penny a pint, and I can recall the gypsies arriving with their loads of elderberries picked from the surrounding countryside. Wages were low and hours long. Fifteen shillings for labourers, apprentices five shillings, with a rise of two shillings and sixpence each year till it reached seventeen shillings and sixpence at twenty-one. Then an odd shilling a week every two years until twenty-seven shillings was reached. We did fifty-four hours and the only holidays were Christmas Day and Good Friday. And if Christmas Day came on a Sunday, that counted as the holiday. The firm was taken over by Holbrook in the 1960s and production ceased at Worcester in 1966. Two years later, the premises were converted and an in, into an industrial estate and the vats, engines and equipment destroyed. I can't really imagine what the smell must have been like, but I suspect as a sort of historical... Oh, well. What would you call it? His archaeological, historical, I don't know what, what the expression is. Industrial archaeology, yeah. exactly. It must have been an yeah. impressive sight. So going from that to something rather smaller, glove making. In 1777, Dents built the first glove factory on South Quay on the River Severn in Worcester. The company was the first to industrialise the process of preparing leather and cutting the designs. Although much of the sewing done by women working in was done by women working in their own homes and they were paid per pair of gloves. 
Cutters in the factory underwent a seven-year apprenticeship. It was a very skilled job to get the most number of gloves out of each hide. Each full-time male cutter required 12 to 15 female sewers working at home. Sewers were recruited from the urban centre and from local rural villages. The cut leather was transported out on a weekly basis to collection points. The peak of the industry was between 1790 and 1820, when half of all British gloves were made in Worcester. In the 1820s, it is estimated that there were about 150 manufacturers of leather gloves in Worcester, and 30 to 40,000 people were estimated to be employed in the glove industry in Worcestershire and Herefordshire, mostly as outworkers. Worcester was very dependent on the glove industry. When import duties on foreign gloves was lifted in 1826, reportedly thousands of people starved in the city and beyond, and many people had to leave to go to work in the bigger industrial cities. Glovers working at home were never well paid. The 1837 Commission investigating the poor laws found that many glove makers were also dependent on their parish, which was the equivalent today of being on benefits. Gradually, this hugely dominant industry slowly declined until even Dents moved from Worcester in the 1930s to its present head office in Warminster, Wiltshire. And, of course, the other well-known manufacturer was Founds, and we still have the Founds Hotel, which is where they set up their um, glove-making factory. And where Catherine and I live, there was a glove-making... Well, it wasn't really a factory, but it was a room, wasn't it, um, along the main tithing that's right and uh you knew it was a glove factory because the windows were huge to let in all the light i'm not sure what it is now but it, uh, the, the school at lower broad heath um at uh, on the at cothridge was a glove making um, was a little factory and we always used to go there twice a year to get the gloves <laughs> in the sale yes <laughs> and, and the person over the road to me in the little cottage was one of the outworkers Oh, still, history. and that was, yes, and that was the yeah. 1990s. So there you are. Well, we've now got Catherine doing something with democracies. That's what I've got written down here, so <laughs> I hope you can explain. Right, well, this is the third magazine that, as a team, we've been involved with, and uh, in the previous two, I've uh, read something each time from a popular philosopher called Julian Baggini, who takes um, sayings and quotations and um, examines them, analyses them, and discusses them in an even-handed way. So the one today is a quotation from the English poet John Dryden who was writing uh, in the 17th century and the lines of his poem are as follows nor is the people's judgment always true the most may err as grossly as the few and this is what Beghini has to say about it the losers of any election may console themselves that majorities are not always right some would go further and agree with Dr Stockman in Ibsen's An Enemy of the People, who declared that the majority never has right on its side because the stupid people are in an absolutely overwhelming majority all the world over. Even champions of democracy do not usually defend it by appeal to the wisdom of crowds, but by echoing Winston Churchill's view that Democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. 
such cynicism rests on the assumption that democracy is premised on the people's capacity to choose wisely. But what if this assumption is false? After all, the most popular songs, books, films or pizzas are far from always the best. It could be argued that the point of democracy is to give people the kind of government they prefer, not the one that is necessarily best for them. The electorate needs to be able to make mistakes if it is to have true freedom of self-determination. What matters is not that the people choose well, but simply that they choose. Even if we do desire wise rule, in Western democracies, the electorate is not called upon to decide which laws to enact or how to spend the nation's finances. It has the more modest task of picking reasonably smart people capable of making the right choices for it. But the most important job of the electorate is simply to hold politicians to account. Despite widespread cynicism about politicians, those who flagrantly abuse their power or do nothing for their constituents are usually booted out. The threat of rejection at the ballot box thus gives an incentive to politicians in democracies to work for us and not themselves. The case for democracy need not rest on the false assumption that the majority is always right, but the credible premise that it helps keep the few who rule in the service of the many. And Baghini goes on to add uh, three more um, quotations which are useful to bear in mind in this respect. One is a late 17th century proverb, the safety in numbers. The second is a German proverb, four eyes see better than two. And the third is a quotation from George Bernard Shaw. Democracy substitutes election by the incompetent many for appointment by the corrupt few. Thank you. Very erudite stuff there. We're now going back to Jane to do a bit on... Now, am I getting this right? Ramesses? Yes. Good. Ramesses II. Take it away. Yes. <laughs> this is the statue of Ramesses II, which is um, in the British Museum. Um, and in 1818, the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley was inspired by a monumental figure in the British Museum to write some of his most widely quoted lines. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Shelley's Osimandias is, or was, actually, Ramses II, King of Egypt from 1279 to 1213 BC. And his giant head with a serenely commanding face looks down on visitors from a very great height, dominating the space around it. When it arrived in England, this was by far the largest Egyptian sculpture that the British public had ever seen and it was the first object that gave them a sense of the colossal scale of the Egyptian achievement. The upper body alone is about 2.5 metres, 8 or 9 feet high, and weighs about 7 tonnes. This is a king who understood, as none before, the power of scale and the purpose of awe. Ramses II ruled Egypt for an astonishing 66 years, presiding over a golden age of prosperity and imperial power. He was lucky. He lived to be over 90. He fathered about a 100 children, and during his reign, 
the Nile floods obligingly produced a succession of bumper harvests. He was also a prodigious achiever. As soon as he took the throne in 1279 BC, he set out on military campaigns to the north and south. He covered the land with monuments, and he was seen as such a successful ruler that nine later pharaohs took his name. He was still being worshipped as a god in the time of Cleopatra, more than a thousand years later. Ramses was a consummate self-publicist and a completely unscrupulous one. To save time and money, he simply changed the inscriptions on pre-existing sculptures so that they bore his name and glorified his achievements. And believe me, I've seen them. All across his kingdom, he also erected vast new temples like Abu Simbel, cut into the rocky sides of the Nile Valley. The huge image of himself there, sculpted in rock, inspired many later imitations, not least the vast faces of American presidents carved into Mount Rushmore. In the north of Egypt, facing towards neighbouring powers in the Near East and the Mediterranean, he founded a new capital city, modestly called Pi Ramses Anaktu, the house of Ramesses II, great and victorious. One of his proudest achievements was his memorial complex at Thebes near modern Luxor. It wasn't a tomb where he was going to be buried, but a temple where he would be venerated in life and then worshipped as a god for all eternity. The Ramesseum, as it's now known, covers an immense area, about the size of four football pitches, and contained temple, palace and treasuries. There were two courtyards in the Ramesseum, and the statue sat at the entrance to the second one. But magnificent though this is, this statue was just one of many. Ramses was replicated again and again throughout the complex, a multiple vision of monumental power that must have had an overwhelming effect on the officials and priests who went there. The sculptor, Antony Gormley, who created the Angel of the North, places such monumental sculpture in context. For me, as a sculptor, the acceptance of the material as a means of conveying the relationship between human-lived biological time and the aeons of geological time is an essential condition of the waiting quality of sculpture. Sculptures persist, endure, and life dies, and all Egyptian sculpture, in some senses, has this dialogue with death, with that which lies on the other side. There is something very humbling, a celebration of what people can do together, because that is the other extraordinary thing about Egyptian architecture and sculpture, which were engaged upon by vast numbers of people, and which were a collective act of celebration of what they were able to achieve. It's an important point. This serenely smiling sculpture is not the creation of an individual artist, but the achievement of a whole society, the result of a huge, complex process of engineering and logistics, in many ways closer, much closer to building a motorway than making a work of art. The granite for the sculpture was quarried from Aswan, more than 150 kilometres, that's 90 miles, up the Nile to the south, 
and extracted in a single colossal block. The whole statue would have originally weighed about 20 tonnes. It was then roughly shaped before being moved on wooden sleds pulled by large teams of labourers from the quarry to a raft which was floated down the Nile to Luxor. The stone was then hauled from the river to the Ramesseum where the finer snowworking took place. An enormous amount of manpower and organisation was needed to erect even this one statue and the whole workforce had to be trained, managed, coordinated and if not paid, many of them would have been slaved, at least fed and housed. To deliver our sculpture, a literate, numerate and very well-oiled bureaucratic machine was essential and that same machine was also used to manage Egypt's international trade and to organise and equip its armies. Ramses undoubtedly had both great ability and real successes, but like all supreme masters of propaganda, where he didn't actually succeed, he just made it up. He was not exceptional in combat, but he was able to mobilise a considerable army and supply them with ample weaponry and equipment. Whatever the actual results of his battles, the official line was always the same. Ramses triumphs. The whole of the Ramesseum conveyed the consistent message of imperturbable success. Here, the Egyptologist Dr Karen Excel on Ramses, the propagandist. He very much understood that being visible was central to the success of the kingship. So he put up as many colossal statues as he could very quickly. He built temples to the traditional gods of Egypt and this kind of activity has been interpreted as being bombastic, showing off and so on. But we really need to see it in the context of the requirements of kingship. People needed a strong leader and they understood a strong leader to be a king who is out there campaigning on behalf of Egypt and who is very visible within Egypt. We can even look at it, what we regard as spin, of the battles of Kadesh in his year five, which was a draw. He came back to Egypt and had the record of this battle inscribed on seven temples and it was presented as an extraordinary success that he alone had defeated the Hittites. So it was all spin, and he completely understood how to use that. This king would not only convince his people of his greatness, he could also fix the image of imperial Egypt for the whole world. Later, Europeans were mesmerised. In 1800, competing aggressive powers in the Middle East, the French and the British, vied with each other to acquire the image of Ramses. Napoleon's men tried to remove the statue from the Ramesseum in 1796 but failed. There's a hole about the size of a tennis ball drilled into the torso, just above the right breast, which experts think came from this attempt. In 1816, the bust was successfully removed, rather appropriately, by a circus strongman-turned-antiques dealer named Giovanni Battista Belzoni, and using a specially designed system of hydraulics, Belzoni organised hundreds of workmen to pull the bust on wooden rollers by ropes to the banks of the Nile, 
almost exactly the method used to bring it to the Ramesseum in the first place. Belzoni then loaded the bust onto a boat and the dramatic cargo went from there to Cairo, to Alexandria and later to London. Ramsey's success lay not only in maintaining the supremacy of the Egyptian state through smooth running of its trade networks and taxation systems, but also using the rich proceeds for building numerous temples and monuments. Shelley heard reports of the discovery of the bust and its transportation to England. He was inspired by the accounts of its colossal scale. But he also knew what had happened to Egypt after Ramesses, with the crown passing to Libyans, Nubians, Persians, Macedonians, and Ramesses' statue itself squabbled over. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level stands stretch far away. Thank you, Jane. I get the feeling that Donald Trump's sort of possibly found someone he's <laughs> borrowed some. <laughs> well, perhaps I shouldn't say that. <laughs> there seems to be sort of all sorts of things running through my mind. Um, we couldn't finish our history program without some reference to books that I think everyone grew up with, the Horrible Histories series. So Catherine is going to delve into, I think it's the Georgians, isn't it, for us today? Yes, I'm going to read you a little bit from uh, Terry Deary's book, The Gorgeous Georgians, but I thought I'd read a little bit from an interview with him that was, that was published in The Telegraph a few years ago, just to tell you about Terry Deary himself. Um, he's not an academic or a historian. Um, he lives in Sunderland and um, he says the following. My publishers phoned me up and said, would you like to write a history joke book? I said, I don't know anything about history. And they said, don't worry about that. We'll give you the facts. All you have to do is write the jokes to go with them. So I started off, but I soon found the facts much more interesting than I'd expected. By the end, instead of having a joke book with facts, we had a fact book with jokes. I seemed to have invented a new genre. This new genre rapidly proved to be astonishingly successful. Parents bought his horrible histories books by the bucket load and gave them to their children, who, to their parents' incredulous delight, devoured them with obvious glee. This is from the beginning of the 1990s onwards. The first book he wrote was Terrible Tudors, followed by Awesome Egyptians. And I'm going to read from the gorgeous Georgians. He obviously likes alliteration. Um, just a couple more things. It, the Horrible Histories then went on to television. They were on children's television, then moved on to BBC One with Stephen Fry presenting. Um, and uh, now um, they are very, very um, widespread and they've sold all around the world. Um, the thing that Terry Deary would really like to be known for more than anything else is that he has a chip on his shoulder about the establishment and he says, I do try to knock the establishment at every turn. I suspect that's one of the reasons why children respond to the books so well. If someone is rich and powerful, then I'm going to point out their bad points more readily than I might do with someone else. But what I've chosen for today, and this is really uh, something to sort of wind up with a laugh, is uh, where he turns his attention to medicine. And... Um, 
he is writing facts with jokes, really. Um, he says, let's suppose that you're living in the Georgian period and you wanted to dodge the doctor and the dentist. Here are five Georgian cures you may like to try. There's just one problem. Four of the crazy cures were actually tried by the Georgians. One has been made up and was never used by the Georgians or anyone else. Can you spot the odd one out? Number one, James Woodford had a sty on his eyelid. He heard that it would go if he rubbed it with the tail of a black cat. He tried, and it worked. Two, Thomas Gray's friend suffered from swollen joints and heard that boiling a whole chicken and eating it with six litres of beer would cure him. He tried it, and it worked. Really? <laughs> Three, people... <laughs> People bitten by a mad dog could catch the dog's disease, rabies. The cure was to take a hair from the dog and put it on the wound or swallow it. This never worked. Uh, four. Toothache is easily cured. Take a poker and heat it in the fire. When it's nice and hot, then burn the earlobe with the poker and the pain in the tooth will go away. Probably because the pain is too much for me. Five. Lavinia Cordell found that a boil on her bottom was painful. Bursting it with a needle caused the boil to spread. Her friend said the trick was to burst it suddenly. Lavinia lifted her skirts and bent over with her back to a horse. Her friend tickled the horse's leg with a stalk of straw. When the kick of the horse landed on Lavinia's backside, the boil burst. The iron of the horse's hoof helped the sore spot to heal in half the time. Lavinia was able to sit down within a month as soon as the bruise from the kick went away. <laughs> so, you have to choose which of those was never a cure that was adopted in the Georgian period. Anybody got any guesses? I'm going to go with Lavinia. I can't... I can't... <laughs> She's probably in the next field. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Phil wins the prize. The story about Lavinia and her boil and the horse's hoof was the one that, oh, that. Uh, never really happened. So thank you very much, Terry Deary, for a very entertaining take on Indeed. Uh, history. Yes. I think that was brilliant. Well, it's time for a bit more John Plush, I think. Are you a fan of film music? If so, you may have heard of a lady whom John Plush met at the cathedral a little while ago. Although many of our finest composers have written for film, some of the scores maturing into full-blown concert pieces like Vaughan Williams' Seventh Symphony using music he wrote originally for the film Scott of the Antarctic, the fact remains that the general movie-going public rarely pay much attention to the soundtrack of the film they're watching. Priority goes to the pictures, and I know I have to concentrate quite hard to focus on the quality of the soundtrack, particularly that of the background music. But the music is so often crucially important to creating the mood of a scene. In fact, I believe it's actually far more important than the visuals. Well, with me here in Worcester Cathedral is Laura Rossi. Now, Laura is a well-established composer of, of music, especially for film and television. I counted over 50 productions for which she has written the music. Laura, what was your first film score? Well, the first thing that I wrote for was Silent Shakespeare, which is a collection of seven short films from the British Film Institute um, that are made as early as 1899. Um, so I managed to get that job when I was straight out of uh, college. So, um, yeah, it was a really special, special job for me. They're very beautiful films. And how did that come about? 
Um, so that came about after I left college. I set my set my cassette tape out because it was that long ago <laughs> as a demo um, to a load of people, um, and uh, I was just lucky that the British Film Institute happened to listen to it and liked it, and it was the kind of thing that they were looking for for that, that particular DVD release. That's typical of the usual commissioning process, is it? Uh, well, for film, I guess quite often it is a case of like sending demos out to directors. Um, and that kind of thing, or you have an agent, I've got an agent now, who pitches you for certain uh, films um, and commissions, that tends to be, I don't know, often it comes from something you've already done, and somebody's had something, they like that, and then they ask you to, if you can write a piece for their particular choir or orchestra. So how do you go about writing a film score? What's the creative process? Uh, so normally it starts off with, um, usually you get sent a rough cut of the film, maybe just to see if it's the kind of thing that you want to do. Um, and then when, once you've definitely got the job, then you meet the director and often the producer and you have um, a spotting session where you sit down and you go through the film and work out which scenes need music, where the music's going to start and end, um, any particular moments you want to accentuate or mark uh, with the music and what the feeling is going to be. Do you ever think, wouldn't it be better if we started with the music and made the pictures match your work? Well, funnily enough, actually, I've got a project that I'm doing at the moment, which is going to be performed at Cheatham School of Music this Thursday, uh, called Carpe Vitam, and it's basically to mark 100 years of women getting the vote. And that's a half an hour piece, and there are two filmmakers, Mike Eden and Romana Bellinger, and actually they're making a film to fit to my music, so very exciting to do it the other way around, so yes. How noticeable should the music on a soundtrack be? Well, a lot of people do tend to say that good film music you shouldn't notice, but I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, I think all the best film music um, really stands up as a great piece of music away from the film, but somehow sums up the whole emotion and feeling of uh, the soundtrack when it's played on its own. Um, so, for example, Ennio Morricone, he's my favourite film composer, and his music definitely you know it has all the feelings and it works so well as a piece of music and I, and I do think you do notice his music on the film and I don't think that's a, a bad thing it's just it's another element that's that's you know represents another part or another motion in the film. In addition to your film work you've also written a host of music for concert performance including choral works and the reason we're here at the cathedral today is that here tonight there's a performance of two of your pieces for orchestra and chorus both from the theme of the great war namely Remember Them and Voices of Remembrance. Tell us about Remember Them. Remember Them was a commission I had in 2016 and it was from Jersey School of Music and Cheatham School of Music as a joint commission and it premiered at Jersey Opera House with David Lawrence conducting and we had loads of different children singing the piece and it was a very special piece because what they did is they had a big competition and opened it up to children in Manchester and children in Jersey to write a poem based on life in the trenches and we had over 600 entries for this and unbelievably some you know, incredible poetry because they were written from you know, the children as, as the ages of sort of 9, 10, 11, that kind of age. They were really amazing poems and we narrowed it down to seven poems which I set to music.
We heard there the Worcestershire Symphony Orchestra with the Mast Children's Choir from nine local primary schools of the Rivers Multi-Academy Trust, the whole conducted by Keith Slade. Now, you, Laura Rossi, have a very personal connection with the Great War. Yes, that's right. I didn't know about this, but through working on the Battle of the Somme and the Battle of the Ankh films, which I was commissioned to write new scores for for the Imperial War Museum, um, when I was researching all about it, I happened to speak to my great-aunt and told me that my great-uncle Fred, who was actually a stretcher-bearer on the Somme and attached to the 29th Division on July the 1st, 1916, and that division heavily featured in the film, so it's very possible that he could actually be in the film. That was something uh, very special, and I have his diaries, so um, having that sort of family connection uh it kind of really helped connect me to that time and i retraced his footsteps and went to some battlefields and visited uh, all the places that, that he was through his diaries yeah it's it's great that my uncle fred is on he's he's actually on the cd cover um I think he would have really liked that his pictures on lots of posters for the, for these concerts your second piece tonight is voices of remembrance yeah so um that piece i wrote to mark the centenary of the beginning of the First World War in 2014 and I wrote it, I I wanted to write it as I just felt like I wanted to go deeper into the feelings and emotions that I got from writing the scores to Battle of the Somme and Battle of the Onk. It became something that meant a lot to me and I spent a lot of time researching it and and thinking about those feelings. I felt like I wanted to write another piece that was about that but different. I think the poetry... um, that's, that's used in, in this piece. They're just such amazing, poignant uh, poems that, because they're written by the men that were actually there. Um, and so I wanted to write something that I haven't actually set most of them to music. So um, three of the poems are set to music, but the others, I felt that it would be much better just to listen to the words. Actually, to hear somebody read them out loud um, in that kind of concert setting is a whole other level of experience. And so the music works as a kind of extension of that feeling or um, a moment to reflect on, on the words that you've just heard. Well, we're going to hear an excerpt from Voices of Remembrance in just a moment. But first, Laura Rossi, thank you very much. Thank you very much. The darkness crumbles away. It is the same old druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat, as I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear. Droll rat. They would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now you have touched this English hand. You will do the same to a German soon, no doubt, if it be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green between. It seems you inwardly grin as you pass. Strong eyes, fine limbs, haughty athletes, less chanced than you for life. Bonds to the winds of Merbdurda, sprawled in the bowels of the earth, the torn fields of France. What do you see in our eyes, as the shrieking iron and flame hurled through still heavens? What quaver, what heart aghast? Poppies whose roots are in men's veins drop, and are ever dropping, but mine in my ear is safe, just a little white with the dust.
is the 11th of November. The war is over. JP talking to film composer Laura Rossi there in the company of the Worcestershire Symphony Orchestra and the children of the Rivers Multi-Academy Trust. The narrator was BBC Hereford and Worcester's Tammy Gooding. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this month's edition and all the facets of history that we've tried to cover. In the style of the two Ronnies, I'd like to say it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him, or in this case, them. So, over to you, Catherine. It's goodbye from me, Catherine. And it's goodbye from me, Phil. And it's goodbye from me, Jane. And Duncan's waving goodbye from the other side of the glass. Thank you all, and have a good spring. I hope you start thinking of barbecues and the summer and the cricket.